This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Joanne Jenkins, CEO of AARP. Joanne, nice to see you. Good morning. Glad to be here. So AARP used to be the American Association of Retired People or Persons, but not anymore. Can you explain that? Sure. I would say it was almost 20 years ago that we dropped the American Association of Retired Persons, uh, partly in recognition that our members are still working. Uh, people are living their best lives in their post 50 plus years, and they're still in the workplace either working for pay or working to volunteer and be active. And so that is part of the recognition that somewhere about 38 to 40 percent of our people are still uh, active in the workforces every day. And what are the primary activities of AARP and what would surprise people that you guys do? Well, first and foremost, we are a mission-driven organization, a social mission organization focused on helping people live with dignity and purpose over the age of 50. Um, so our advocacy work is core to uh, what it is we do. We also have uh, <clears throat> uh, products, discounts, services that we provide discounts to many of our members. Uh, we provide educational content. Hopefully people go to aarp.org. I tell the staff all the time, if you're over the age of 50 and thinking about do some, doing something, I want you to go to aarp.org, not amazon.com or google.com. And you have a lot of media too, including the magazine, which is a, has a huge circulation and the covers are you know, Jeff Bridges and Henry Winkler, Ringo, Halle Berry. It's always surprising when someone turns 50 and then they pop up on the cover, right? Well, absolutely. And, and the magazine, I think this is the fifth or sixth year in a row that we are the most read magazine in the U.S., uh, outpacing Costco that moved into number two during COVID and People Magazine that's number three. But we are very proud of our publications, not only ATM the magazine, but also the bulletin uh, that reaches 22 million households uh, every time they're mailed. Yeah, I'm waiting for Usher. And he's 45 years <laughs> he's old. Almost you keep track you, I know, he's almost 50. It's surprising. You keep track of people as they get closer? <clears throat> uh, we try to keep track of anybody getting approaching that age 50 so that we can reach out to them and welcome them to the organization. Welcome to the club. So you've been uh, CEO here for a while. What do you consider your biggest accomplishments? The Washington Post said that you have fundamentally changed the organization. How is that, Joanne? Well, I think... You know, when I became CEO um, back in 2014, I think my biggest aha was that people were changing and the way they were aging was changing, that 50 was not the new 30 and 60 was not the new 40, 50 was 50 and it was okay that people could actually live 50 years beyond the age of 50. Uh, you know, what I like to call the longevity index. And so thinking about how do we change the perception of aging so that people are comfortable uh, with who they are and how old they are and, and, and comfortable saying, I'm 65. Uh, you know, this organization was started 65 years ago by a female, Dr. Ethel Percy Anders. Uh, she started the year I was born and I'm the first permanent CEO of AERP female since she was the female. So we have a lot of men in between us. Uh, but, you know, I think that 
more than anything, it's about social change, about focusing on uh, how do we make sure that Social Security is protected, you know, making sure that people have safe, affordable health care, uh, and more recently focused on social connections. How do we make sure that our members are connected and have access to the information and services that they need every day? Right, there's a lot to jump off from in what you just said, but I want to ask you about how you change the perceptions and realities about aging in America. What are you doing about the mindset of Americans regarding aging? What's so important to us is that, you know, people see aging as a positive attribute, that they're not constantly thinking that, oh, when I turn 65, only negative things are going to happen to me. That's certainly not what's happening in my own personal life and not what's happening to many of the people that I work with and deal with every day. Yet there are still many people who are not aging well. Uh, <clears throat> The longevity report that we put out a couple years ago talks about the likelihood that you're going to reach 100 is very likely with new medicines and sciences. And so if, in fact, you join AARP at 50, you could possibly be an AARP member for 50 years. So how do we create that consumer value, that experience, that people want to be a part of this organization and they see the value in our advocacy work and the way we've changed the perception of aging about how we approach long-term solutions so that people know that they have a responsibility to save and they just can't depend on Social Security alone and then also focusing on those health-related issues. You know, sometimes you get older, you see what other people might call as microaggressions. Oh, old person trying to use technology. You know, you hear lines like that, right? Well, so I would say to you that uh, close to 80% of our members are technology connected. Mm -hmm. And we saw that escalate during COVID. You know, we had a three to five year uh, strategy to bring our members along, and yet they did it in 90 days, learning how to, you know, do video conferencing and Zoom and Microsoft Teams and to be able to stay connected. And also, you know, the advances that are being made in telehealth. Mm -hmm. uh, I dare say I too uh, still do my telehealth uh, visits with my doctor. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's something that we're gonna see go back. So I think that it's a constant learning. Uh, obviously, young, younger people learn faster. Uh, but I don't think that uh, <clears throat> we're walking into this with our eyes closed, that people understand that they need to learn how to use the technology, and they're it, doing it. And you talked about longevity and people living older, but actually the most recent trends, people aren't living longer, Joanne, because of suicide and drug use, alcoholism, car accidents, and coming out of COVID. Is this a disturbing trend to you? Well, I would say that that growth uh, and longevity up until COVID was projected for people to live longer. And I think the numbers are still the fastest growing age group in this country is people over the age of 85. Uh, so, but that said, uh, we've certainly seen a high, high influx of the, the areas where you've covered. And that concerns me. I think that should concern all of us of how society is addressing uh, these issues around mental health, around uh, physical disabilities, uh, and, and really about how they are <clears throat> uh, handling the negative aspects of social media and how that interplays into their mental capabilities. I want to shift gears and ask you a little bit about the economy in Washington, D.C., where we are right now. Um, the economy, higher interest rates, are they good or bad for seniors? 
you have inflation on the one hand and higher interest rates on the other hand. Where does that come out? I think higher interest rates are bad for all of us. And so mm -hmm. certainly we try to get our members to focus on the long run to, to make sure that if in fact you're living some 10 or 15 years longer, uh, that you are preparing for that financial uh, outlay of funds well beyond living to be 60 or 70 years of age. And so I think high, having higher interest rates and having uh, all of those other high mortgages uh, and lower uh, returns on savings accounts certainly affects not just older people, but younger people as well. And I try to think about it in terms of how do we create this ageless societies as so that we think about whether it's retirement uh, income and how long you can afford to live versus how long are you going to live, hopefully in good health in the future, and to sort of look at that aspect of it and know that what I like to call the three P's, that we have a personal responsibility to save and take care of ourselves, that there's a public responsibility, and there's a uh, role that the private sector has to play in making sure that older people in this country have what they need to, to live long, healthy, vibrant lives. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at apollo.com slash private credit. Entitlements, Medicare and Social Security. I know your organization works hard to maintain and protect that. On the other hand, don't they need to be reformed in some sense to make the government more physically sound? So I don't call them entitlements. I call them entitled to. Social Security is a program that the American people over the course of a work life have paid into with the promise that that money is going to be there and wisely invested so that they can draw their Social Security at whatever age appropriate time that they need to do that. Uh, we certainly have been at the forefront of uh, trying to push the Congress and the White House to let's sit down and talk about Social Security and what we can do to make sure that it's solvent, not just for the current generations, but for future generations. And so we certainly would push back on Social Security being an entitlement, but an entitled to. And obviously healthcare, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, those programs, people depend on it. You know, for 25% of the country um, depend on Medicare uh, for their only source of health um, insurance. And also that, that Medicare is there for people who need it when they turn 65. So those two programs uh, are at the top of the list of what our 38 million members say they are most concerned about and why they join AARP. Isn't there a problem though with the population getting older and less young people to support the system? And how do we address that? So I, I absolutely, you know, the numbers don't work anymore. When, when uh, these programs were put in place, life expectancy was, you know, you were gonna retire in your early 60s and die before the age of 70. That obviously isn't happening uh, to the majority of Americans who have paid into that system over the course of their lifetime. And so we certainly have to make uh, sensible reforms uh, to make sure that Social Security is there and in the future. There's a lot of talk about gridlock and dysfunction here in Washington, Joanne. Does that benefit AARP? Is that good for you guys or bad for you guys or neither? 
I don't think, I would say neither. I think that what we try to do in our advocacy work, whether it's with the Hill or the White House or at state and local governments all across this country, is to be totally transparent, to say, this is what we believe is best for our members. This is what we're going to be advocating for. We'd like to be at the table working with you. Uh, and I would say, you know, we've been uh, fairly successful in doing that over the years. Uh, what I do see is that, uh, Governments seem to wait until things get to a crisis point before they act. Uh, and so uh, our goal is to, to, to be able to work before we reach that point. Social Security is solvent through 2032, I think the latest numbers mm -hmm. from the uh, uh, trust fund uh, say. But, you know, we don't need to wait till 2032 to have conversations to, to think about what needs to be done to make sure it's there in the future. And that's part of uh, our job here at AARP. I like to say, you know, we are a, uh, <clears throat> a nationwide organization. We happen to be here in Washington in, in the nation's capital, but we are in off, we have 50 offices in all of the states all across the country, and we want to be where our members are at the local community, working on the issues that are important to them. Uh, you've been here in Washington working in public service for a long time and yes. started out working for Ronald Reagan, I think, and you've said that you worked for presidents or first ladies in almost every administration going mm -hmm. forward since then. Is this as bad as you've seen it? I think it's difficult. I mm -hmm. think that, you know, um, you know, usually in the current situation, you always think, I've never seen it this bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say to you, I, I have hope for democracy and that uh, our governments will function, but uh, it's certainly different than it has been in the past. Prescription drug costs. That's always a hot button topic for you, but they really seem to continue to rise. What's going on? What's the latest there? So we are so pleased that this year that we were able to work with the Congress and the White House to um, give Medicare, HHS, uh, the authority to negotiate the price of prescription drugs on a set number of prescriptions. Uh, we pay the, uh, the largest amount for prescription drugs in any country in the world, and that's just not fair. And I think that uh, this is a little step in the right direction. It also will, uh, legislation has been put in place to cap uh, the out-of-pocket cost to $2,000. That makes a huge difference to people who are on set incomes or who live only on Social Security to be able to do that. Uh, when you talk to members of Congress on the Hill, they understand it. Uh, but when it comes down to actually taking that vote, it's been more difficult than we would have thought uh, because this is an issue that everyone can turn to and say, this makes no sense that we would be paying 10, 15 times more than the cost of, uh, for the same drug that people in other countries are paying. Well, in a way, we're subsidizing these other countries, right? Because government here has not been able to tackle the pharma companies in a way that the governments in other countries have, I guess, right? Well, we certainly, you know, I always say that, listen, it's, it's not that we hate pharmaceutical companies. We believe that their drugs are working uh, and that people ought to have access to them. But that makes, uh, that's even more important that the cost is reasonable, that everyday Americans can afford it. And so this uh, legislation authority will give uh, HHS, the authority to negotiate for with at least the top big 10 drugs that many, many Americans take. Another area that is of keen interest to you and your members is consumer fraud. And seniors are particularly susceptible. 
I'm wondering if you thought about what's been going on with deep fakes and AI to perpetrate these kinds of frauds on seniors. Well, our members certainly are concerned around fraud, and we have been uh, focused on this issue for many, many years, unfortunately. Uh, and so uh, with the new technology, with uh, <clears throat> generative AI and chat GPT and all of the fraud that you know, comes along with just picking up your cell phone or your iPad or computer. Uh, so we have been focusing on educating our members through our publications, through our online information and newsletters, uh, through our work at the 50 state offices. I've been very pleased to see how much work has, has been passed through legislative changes and bills at the state level, uh, many of which have floated up uh, and then had the national uh, uh, legislature to act on too. So it's something that uh, unfortunately it's not going away, but uh, we need to focus on it and we need to alert our members to make sure that they understand uh, how to, how to uh, identify a fraudulent email or a scam or some kind of computer attack that may be trying to get access to their personal information. I want to go back and ask you about age discrimination a little bit more in the workplace though specifically. Are there rules that can be promulgated to protect older workers? And what's the latest on that front? Unfortunately for us, we've seen a uptick in age discrimination, particularly coming out of COVID. Uh, we believe that you know it's important to keep older people in the workforce. We, we have evidence to show that having multiple generations in the workplace at one time actually is a benefit uh, to companies of understanding. You know, uh, when you think about the fact that 56 cents of every dollar in the U.S. is uh, spent by someone over the age of 50. That these are the these are the consumers who are actually buying the products uh, that are being put in the market, and we need to make sure that the workforces reflect that they have those folks included in the workplace. Uh, and you know, here at AERP, we have four to five generations in our workforce, uh, and uh, having that diverse team of uh, an older experienced worker who brings that wisdom, that brings culture into an organization, uh, <clears throat> particularly at a time when so many companies are 100% virtual. Uh, and how do, you, how do you make sure that people understand why we exist and what we're here to do or you know, what products we're selling, what issues we're trying to solve in people's lives, that you know, we need to do everything that we can to, to make sure um, we're attacking age discriminations. Uh, we see um, algorithms uh, being used by companies that, I, that ask for what year you graduated from college or limit the number of years of experience. All of those are identifiers to, I'm not looking for an older person uh, to hire. And I think, you know, certainly our litigation team at AARP Litigation works with uh, attorney generals all across this country to, to try to combat ageism. You turned 65 yourself this year, I did. and next year you'll be here 10 years. Yes. So what are you thinking about your work-life balance, Joanne? So my work-life balance, uh, I, I love and enjoy my work. So I'm one of those people who I'm up at five. Uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily a late person, but you know I do my 12 hours a day in terms of the work at ARP, and I enjoy doing it. Uh, I think that uh, we have to balance, you know, the work that we're doing coming off of COVID here at AARP. Uh, we, we all work at home on Mondays and Fridays, and we're in the office Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and it seems like a sweet spot for us. 
uh, and we try to make sure that we have those moments that matter that people need to gather. Part of the, what we've been so successful at at AARP is being in community, seeing people face to face, listening to their concerns, uh, hearing what they're going through. And I think that's true for employers and being in the workplace as well. You know, coming up on my 10th anniversary, we are uh, squarely focused on what I call our digital first initiative, that how do we create an experience for our members that makes them want to go to the digital first experience versus that print publication. For us, uh, <clears throat> fewer and fewer uh, print companies in the U.S. are capable of handling our workload, so that competition for us is getting smaller. Uh, and we can add so much content, I'm sure you know this, so much more content online than we can do in a print publication. So you can go deeper if you're reading an article in ATM the magazine, you can actually go in and click on video clips behind the scenes to get more interactive and more information from that. So being a digital first organization and thinking about and putting our members and customers at the center of everything we do uh, is, uh, keeps me up and gets me energized about coming to work here every day. And final question, Joanne, what are some things that people as they grow older trip up on? What, or what should they focus on conversely as they get older? What are some of the most important things for their lives and for their work, their careers? So I think that uh, first and foremost, I would say health, uh, that we know that people who eat healthy and exercise live longer lives. Uh, if, in fact, the statistics are true that we could live 10 to 15, 20 years longer than perhaps our parents or grandparents, we want that extra uh, life to be healthy and active and not be uh, a health situation that you're in decline. And so focusing on your health, obviously uh, focusing on saving for retirement to do the things. I, I usually don't use the word retirement, but we're saving to do the things that you want to do later in life, whether that's uh, staying at home or uh, volunteering or actually taking on some other kind of role. And more and more, particularly with social media, we're seeing how important it is to stay connected, uh, whether by video chat or, uh, or just picking up the phone and having a conversation or speaking directly to a neighbor. We know that people who are not isolated live seven to eight years longer than people who are isolated and alone. And that certainly came to the forefront during COVID. Joanne Jenkins, CEO of AARP, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's my pleasure. This is At Barron's, I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barron's is Ellie Ismailadu, Rebecca Bisdale, Kinga Rojak, Joe Lusby, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producers are Kristen Bellstrom and Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.